If you like the Live Wild podcast and enjoy hunting-related apparel, I've got you covered. I just launched some great t-shirts, hats, and sweatshirts under my own Live Wild brand. You can find them now on my website, remywarren.com. I just want to say thanks again, everyone, for all the support, and I really hope you enjoy these designs as much as I do. Who knows? Maybe you'll head over to my website and find your next lucky hat. I'm Remy Warren, and I've lived my life in the wild. As a professional guide and hunter, I've spent thousands of days perfecting my craft. I want to give that knowledge to you. In this podcast, we relive some of my past adventures as I give you practical hunting tips to make you more successful. Whether you're just getting started or a lifelong hunter, this podcast will bring you along on the hunt and teach you how to live wild. This podcast is brought to you by Mountain Tough and Yeti. A lot of the tactics I talk about here require you to be in top physical shape. So I partnered with Mountain Tough to help get you ready for the mountain. With their science-based hunter-specific training app, you'll get in shape and mentally tough, able to tackle any hunt. Because we really believe this will help you be more successful, as a listener to this podcast, we're giving you six free weeks to get you started. Just use code LIVEWILD. It's no secret Yeti has some of the best and most durable gear out there. But when it came to hydration, they previously didn't have a great backcountry solution. Well, that all changed with their new Yonder water bottle. My Yonder covered the backcountry all across the West last season while chasing mule deer, elk, caribou, and more. It's about 50% lighter than their insulated Rambler, but still has that Yeti toughness. The best part is they've now got them in four different sizes, so you can pack the bottle perfectly fit for your hunt. To top it off, there's also great options for customization. You can check them out now at yeti.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the Live Wild Podcast. Now, this week, I'm joined with Brian Broderick of Day Six Arrows. This week, we're going to be going and doing a deep dive into all things broadheads. This is going to be an all-encompassing podcast on everything you need to know about the sharp, pointy end of the arrow. So let's jump in and talk broadheads with Brian. Brian, how's it going, man? All right, buddy. I appreciate you having me back on. We yeah. are just now recovering from the first one that we did with you about arrows. So it's probably time to do this one. Yeah, it's been great. You know, I, out of a lot of the podcasts we do, people were really excited about that podcast. I got a lot of great feedback on it because we just, we dove in and talked about all the questions that people have of something that's like, should be simple and has been made confusing. And and I think that, <laughs> you know, we were talking and, and Broadheads is is one of those topics as well. Because as an archer, the point of the broadhead is to cut and kill. It's the contact point between your arrow and the animal that you're hunting. And so it is important. And I told some stories this past year on the podcast about some malfunctions with some broadheads, mechanicals particularly. And, you know, and just saying like, there, there is a lot to know there and, and you can never know too much about it. But I thought you'd be a great guy to, to bring on and do a deep dive like a this could be a guide for people of saying like, this is an all encompassing podcast. If you want to know anything about a broadhead, listen to this podcast because right. uh, Brian really <laughs> breaks it down. And, and I think that that's like a really good resource for people when whatever they're hunting or whatever they're doing, they can kind of use this as a reference and say like, Oh, okay. Th- this is why things are the way that they are. And it, it's, it's, it's going to be awesome information. I'm really excited about this. So thank you for coming on because I think this is going to be a, a pretty valuable podcast for our listeners. Well, I appreciate it. It's um, I, I tried to do my best to kind of gather my thoughts and and organize them so we can deliver kind of a succinct message and not you know ramble too much. So the cool thing is is that one of the what, what I love about broadheads more than anything is that no matter how much tech and design and marketing you put behind a broadhead the basic concept of it hasn't changed for thousands of years pretty dadgum neat i mean like if you pick up one of our heads and look at it and then you look at some of like the old maasai you know heads and things like that i mean we're not reinventing the wheel here by any means but there is some really cool i I would say micro details to discuss and, and to understand kind of how broadheads came about and then how the different designs came about and what they're supposed to do. And then the other thing is, is gosh, you know, one size doesn't fit all. 
it's not a, a this is the best broadhead for everybody type thing. I, I feel like, you know, there's a place for just about everything. And I think that's kind of what we can maybe simply explain to your guys the way we kind of did with the arrows, you know? Yeah, no, that that's awesome. It's funny you say that because I found this year uh, Arrowhead while out hunting mule deer and it had like a really long, I joked around, as like the world's first hidden insert because it had like a, essentially a part that would go into the shaft that was about an inch long. It was like double the length of the rod. And I said, this, somebody was playing around with hidden inserts here about a thousand years ago, you know. They um, probably didn't know what the word concentricity meant. But that's yeah, what they that's were going exactly for. what they were going for. And I'm like, look at this. Like this, it was a it was a smaller broadhead. You know, maybe it was used for small game or maybe they just wanted a little bit more weight and a little bit better flight, whatever it was, like they were onto something. <laughs> Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because we will circle back to that. Uh, we actually are releasing a new head, which I wasn't even going to talk about on this, but we're actually releasing our heads that have integrated collars and integrated center pins, extended center pins that are going to be glue-in versions, you know, for micros. For the guys that want to have like the perfect concentricity, spins perfect, run out perfect, bomb-proof, integrated collar, you know, the guys that just want the the very, very best. And I mean, I can just imagine how that guy who started napping out that head that you found was like, crap, my last two have broken right here. I'm going to make this longer. So yeah, I can put more send you around it and, <laughs> yeah. and support it with the arrow. So it's, that's pretty neat. Yeah, um, it's awesome. But so, all right. So we'll, we'll talk about some of these different like categories here and then have some kind of maybe simple discussion about about that. So the first thing that I kind of had was design. And so with the different types of designs that you have, you know, you have uh, basically a, a two-blade design that could be with or without a bleeder. Um, that's kind of what people refer to as a cut-on contact head to where the blade is actually the leading edge, the first thing that comes in contact with the animal versus a three-blade. And the three blades can be a single piece, single piece forged, or like a machined piece that has a ferrule and then inserted replaceable blades that has some type of, quote, fancy tip or leading point on it. And then you have the different types of blades, which is straight or curved. And then with the curved blades, they can be convex or concave. And what is the benefits of that? And then to me, the most important thing when it comes to a broadhead design is blade angle. I feel like blade angle is everything just based on my experience. So the two blade versus three blade, you and I, I think both have like very extensive experience with kind of the same heads probably. <laughs> so yeah. The three blade, I shot a G5 Montec for 20 years, probably out of my compound. And then very similar heads to that. Uh, the longer versions that I think NAP made, and then some of the forged ones like the Winslow Woodsman's and things like that. But I always shot a two blade out of my traditional bows. And then once my simple way of thinking kind of took hold, it was like, hey buddy, you're shooting a two-blade kind of contact head because you have less energy with your traditional bow and you're trying to get maximum penetration. Why in the world would you not translate that thought process over to your compound and just have overkill? And so that's when I started transitioning my compounds kind of from three blades to two blades. And then the next you know, segment we talked about, you know, that we highlighted here was two blades with or without bleeders. I had incredible penetration with two blades, but the ones that didn't have bleeders would leave like a perfect slit wound channel, like totally mirror imaging. And they would coagulate or, or clot up so fast. And that simple slit wound channel would heal so quickly that that was kind of the downside to that in comparison to a three blade because a three blade would leave a more disruptive three, you know, triangle shaped hole. So by adding a bleeder, 
really the only thing it's doing is disrupting that perfect slit. So that wound channel doesn't heal up quickly. And for me, that has been the best combination as far as all the designs, that two blade with a bleeder, I feel like it's the best of both worlds. I, and with regards to the three blade, yeah, you're, you, you are getting a, maybe a larger shaped hole, but what I did experience with three blades was not necessarily a lack of penetration on perfect shots. It was a lack of penetration on less than perfect shots. Yeah. When you centered like a moose rib or an elk rib or a shoulder or scapula, that three blade design for me almost created almost like a perfect wedge and a perfect break. And I had so many three blade heads that would lodge themselves into a bone, a scapula, a leg, a rib. And then when you recovered that animal, you would see where it's perfectly lodged in and stopped to where with the two blade design, I got more breaches of that bone and it would go through. Does that kind of translate to your experience? Yeah, I actually um, started using two blades. I think when I, I started hunting some bigger stuff in Australia and, and my friends there were like, if you're going to hunt water buffalo or whatever, you, you use a heavy arrow, you use a higher poundage bow and you use a two blade broadhead. And uh, they, they would use those two blades on pretty much everything because it's wild pigs and whatever. And just the fact for penetration, kind of the same thing I was like, whoa, I just shot through a water buffalo with my bow. Right. Imagine what this would do on an elk if I accidentally hit it in the shoulder. Same kind of thing, though. You know, I think uh, a popular blade over there was a, a two-blade kind of single bevel that didn't have yes. any bleeders. And what would happen is it would slice through and you get great penetration. But, yeah, that wound channel would close up. So I kind of came to the same thing of using bleeders on a two-blade, and, and I got still really great penetration, but also better recovery. And I, I mean, that is even with the bleeder, sometimes you get that wound closing up, but you can get that any, any time too, right? Like it's just sometimes blood sure. co coagulates on bigger animals like elk. Uh, that's where I kind of value that penetration. Or like you said, those shots where an animal might be quartered more than you think, or it jumped and turned and bam, you hit the top of the the shoulder blade as it's moving and you still poked through and got two lungs, one lung, whatever you get that, that made a big difference. So that, that's kind of how I see it. I mean, I've shot and I say this, like I've literally shot probably nearly every broadhead on the market because I'll still just continue to test stuff just to see what happens. And, um, you know, I kind of always go back to the tried and true of two blade with bleeder is for me, my preferred broadhead to hunt with. And that's, my preference. And like you said, there's scenarios and situations where other things might benefit you, but that I, I do like that aspect of penetration and then kind of keeping that wound channel more open personally. You know, kind of going down that path with regards to design, blade angle is incredibly important to me. And what I see with most two blades that have bleeders is that the bleeders are an afterthought and they're normally positioned at the back of the head. And they normally have this very aggressive straight out angle uh, because they're trying to fit it in after a two blade's been designed. And what I discovered, you know, shooting a, a lot of different animals with different heads, especially with traditional gear, because you basically are running less horsepower, <laughs> is that the bleeder was just as important as the, as the main blade shape. So if you've got a, a, a beautiful low profile angle, blade angle that has very, very little resistance and drag. And then you take a bleeder and you just stick it straight out. It basically is a parachute. It's a, it's a break. So it's important that the bleeders are really low profile and they adhere to that same theory of low, very gentle blade angle uh, as the main blade does. So if you see broadheads where the bleeder is positioned further forward, it does two things. It allows you to have a longer bleeder and have a lower, less aggressive blade angle, but it also, the further forward it is, it's opening the path ahead of the feral body instead of behind it. So you're basically reducing friction and penetration is not a function of anything other than sidewall friction. That is the 
basically the science or the engineering, if you will, on how to get optimum penetration. It's basically eliminating the sidewall pressure on the head, the arrow, as it's passing through. So if you can create a slightly larger hole and open the hole up at the very front, there's no sidewall friction as the arrow passes through the animal. So having that bleeder further forward and lower lower profile so it doesn't create drag or anything like that, but also opening up as far forward as it can, does that job to the, you know, it optimizes the penetration. And so when I talk about the bleeder sticking straight out and blade angle is everything, that kind of segues into one of the things in the design topics was straight versus curved, but curved versus, you know, convex versus concave. And so, so a little history, the reason that you see 99% of the blades on broadheads as straight is because they're very easy to make that way and they're very easy to sharpen. If they're straight, you can just clamp, build a jig and clamp it on a belt and they can be sharpened very easily and anybody can do it on any type of machinery. When you put a curve in it, whether it be concave or convex, it creates a whole nother spectrum of, of requirements to sharpen it. That's why it's very difficult to do and you see very few heads that are curved. And it's only because of a pro- production limitations. Convex versus concave, again, if you look at any arrowhead <laughs> that you ever pick up on the ground, they're all convex. They're the Maasai shape, they're, they're radiused. That is because that is the strongest shape available. The reason things are round or radius is strictly for strength. If, if, if it didn't matter, 55 gallon barrels would be square. Uh, pipes would be square. Uh, bridges would not be arched. But having things that are radius and convex creates strength without having to add material. But again, the reason that you don't see that is because of the production limitations uh, and the cost associated with it. Now, there's a lot of heads out there. Well, not a lot, but a few that you see that are convex, concave. They're pointy in the front, and then they wing out at the back. Well, I shot a head for 15 years out of my stick bow that was made in Alabama, uh, where I was originally from. Famous head still today, and it was the concave. But what I realized as you shoot more and more animals and you start to understand what's happening is that the concave version defeats the entire theory and premise behind blade angle. You're basically creating wings. And what it's doing is it's slowing down penetration because it's creating drag, because it's having to chop instead of slice. And that's why blade angle is so critical because anyone that's ever used anything sharp, whether it be a knife or a broadhead or whatever, knows that if you drag that blade just drag it along your finger, you can slice yourself to the bone. But if you had to push straight down, it requires an incredible amount of force, like an ax. And so what you're trying to do is you're wanting these blades to slice with very little resistance. And when you have blades that stick straight out with very harsh angles or or concave, um, it kind of defeats the purpose in those two categories. Does that that make sense? Yeah, exactly. Because as it's flying through it, it all of a sudden kind of hits a wall. And it goes now instead of if slicing and cutting, now I got to bam, pow, power through. And, and when you hit something like a rib or something like that, it, it decreases the penetration even more because you've got the drag, you're just chopping right into that bone as, as opposed to continuing the slice that you're making with the broadhead. It makes a lot of sense. Exactly. And so, you know, anecdotal for me, like I was super fortunate to grow up in the South where we were just haired over with hogs. And for me, a hog is by far the toughest animal to kill with archery equipment, uh, just based on its, its, you know, its makeup, the hide thickness. But one of the things that people don't really give them enough credit for is how coarse their hair is. And their hair is almost like wire. And so, the density of their body, the fat, the thickness of the hide, the huge scapula plates, you know, that they have, it just is the perfect animal to learn how to 
get maximum penetration. I was fortunate enough to grow up to where they were everywhere. Um, and it's funny you mentioned Australia because I don't know if you know this, but day six originated in Australia. That This is where it all came from. My, my original partner that I was going to do this with is a uh, water buffalo, Asiatic buffalo guide in Australia and had started designing and building these arrows that we make now just for the buffalo. And he and I were going to do this together. And then he went off into another another deal and we took went ahead and took day six and formed it and got it going. But the buffalo and the hogs over there, you can't put two animals on earth on the same place that are harder to get an arrow through to me than those two. So with that, you know, mentioning the, the, the coarse hair, for me, blade angle is crucial and integral to maintaining your sharp edge. And the sharp edge is everything. This is what broadheads are supposed to do. They're supposed to slice, right? They're not supposed to create shock or impact or anything. There's supposed to be no resistance and they're supposed to slice. So having a razor sharp edge to me is paramount. And blade angle is what helps keep that edge sharp as it's going through different types of material and matter as well as the type of material, the type of edge that it is, and the angle of that bevel, how it's done. So do you want to dive into what makes a broadhead sharp, why it should be sharp, and how to keep it sharp? Yeah, let's go down that path because that's a really good point and that's something that you learn early on with bow hunting. You know, it's, it's about cutting. Animal needs to be cut, needs to be cut through the vitals, and that cutting is what kills it. They bleed out. Whereas a rifle or a muzzleloader, you know, kills generally by shock. Yes. I did, I was guiding in New Zealand and there was a new broadhead that came out and it was like, I can't explain it probably well enough, but it would have like a bone crushing tip and then had three round blades, not round, like circular, like. I saw, I've seen that. <laughs> and the guy brought it out and I was looked at, it, I said, this won't work. <laughs> and he's like, no, they're supposedly <laughs> awesome. And I was like, all right. And I was like, I really suggest we don't use this. And we was a tar hunt. And we get up on the mountain on tar and he hits a tar and they've got a lot of hair. But it did exactly what I was expecting. It hit it like a blunt tip and like he did not get that tar. I mean, I shot it with the rifle because um, yeah. it was like there's an arrow sticking in it. And so I shot it with a rifle so we didn't have a wounded tar running around. But yeah, we got up to the tar and it didn't even penetrate into the body like body cavity it just stopped like the hair and le leather of the hide stopped and i was like i don't know maybe there's animals out there that this works on but it doesn't work on these animals you know so it does make a difference and you know getting away from that cutting would be against what a broadhead is designed to do well the thing is is that what we're trying to do is create hemorrhage we're trying to have these animals bleed out extremely fast and we're aiming for vitals that have high vascular content, i.e. heart, lungs, so on and so forth. So, you know, having the edge razor, razor sharp from the time of impact all the way through to the other side is incredibly important to me. Because if you have, let's say, very cheap material, but you've got it razor sharp, when you say hit a hog or an animal that has coarse hair, very tough hide or has to pass through some cartilage or rib. And by the time it gets to where the vitals are, it's dull because of that. Whether that be the, the blade design, the edge design or the material, you're defeating the purpose if it's not as sharp when it comes out as it is when it goes in. Hogs taught me that. I mean, you, you know their hair is just like, it's wire. You almost can't cut it with a knife. It's so incredibly tough. What it does is it dulls an edge incredibly quickly. So for me, edge retention is super important. So it's the type of material you use. It's a pretty simple sourcing there because people have been building knives forever and there's some incredible knives out there. And those guys have pretty much figured out what the best deal is to build knives with that's going to hold an edge the longest. That's how you judge a knife. I mean, I can't tell you how many I've said, cool knife, looks great, but it's not sharp 15, 20 minutes into the work. 
you judge a knife about how long it holds its edge. My gosh, it's literally a broadhead is the same thing. So material type is incredibly important. The hardness of that material, as you get into the higher steels, having them heat treated to where they're incredibly hard makes that finite little point that you're creating with that edge super durable and tough. And it lets it keep that little tiny point or edge longer. And then the bevel angle. If you grind it too shallow, you have a very weak edge, if you will. It's not supported on both sides, let's say like a steeple, okay? So that's important. And that segues into a super popular head right now, which the single bevel, which it almost makes me giggle because I was shooting single bevels in the 80s and <laughs> the 90s. And just a quick history, single bevels came about because back then a large portion of the broadheads were being built in guys' garages, right? Well, they didn't have sophisticated equipment to grind, you know, double bevels, perfect, you know, edges on blades. But with a single bevel, you can just basically file it from one side and get a sharp edge. That's why when you go into the jungle or go into the middle of nowhere in Africa, every machete you see is a single bevel. It's because they're sharpening them on rocks. <laughs> so that is how the single bevel came about. And it's funny because at some point, some guy looked at it and said, oh, well, this bevel's facing this way and this bevel's facing the other on the other side. It's going to create rotation like a boat propeller. Well, it probably looks like it would, and that's the big cells that it creates rotation. But if you look at the ratio of the edge or the bevel to the whole body of the head, it's like 2% of the surface area is the sharpened single bevel, and 98% of it's the rest of the body. If that small amount of bevel did create rotation, you wouldn't see boat props built to where they are, to where that's, you know, 20% hub, 80% blade. You wouldn't see airplanes be the ratio they are. It would be 80% fuselage and 20% wing. But that's not how rotation works. It has to have a large ratio of whatever's going to create that resistance or force to, to, to rotate. The single bevels just don't have it. And if you notice... You, what you'll see is the guys that have jumped the single bevel bandwagon um, like it's something new uh, when it's been around forever is that they're starting to change their verbiage to where it says um, assists in con the continuation of the arrow's rotation. They're just kind of like glossing over the fact that it doesn't create rotation. The reason that I stopped shooting single bevels is because I wasn't, like incredibly and figured out that the edge was weaker than a, than a double beveled supported edge. It was because you couldn't really find single bevels back then in the 80s and 90s with bleeders. And I had come to the determination that I had to have a bleeder as our previous discussion. But what I understood later is that with a single bevel, it comes to a, it's flat on one side and it comes to the one side bevel on the other and it comes to a very weak, unsupported edge. And what would happen, especially on hogs, that that coarse hair would chip and damage that very weak, unsupported edge on a single bevel design so quickly that I never had razor sharp heads on the other side of the animal. Does that make sense? Yeah, that um, makes sense. So that is kind of the reason that they're, I wouldn't say like incredibly inferior to a double bevel edge, but they're certainly not superior. The selling point there is that they create rotation. Let's say for argument's sake that they do. My contention in testing says that they don't. It's pretty simple physics, but why would you want to create rotation? And so the, the cell there is that it rotates, it's gonna split the bone. That's not how it works. <laughs> That's not how breaching bone works. But for me, I would not want 
something that created rotation in an animal. Because um, what people fail to, to realize or, or consider is that energy is not free. And so if you have a head that creates rotation or rotates through, it's a screw versus a nail. So think about how much torque and power it takes to run a screw into a piece of wood versus driving a nail in it. Very little resistance on a nail takes a lot. It takes an extra external motor to turn the screw. So that external motor, the only thing that you have is the arrow because the broadheads do not create energy. Newton's laws of motion are super simple. A body remains at rest or is in motion at, con at a constant speed in a straight line unless it's acted upon by a force. So if you're going to create rotation, the only thing that can rotate that broadhead through the animal is the energy from the arrow, which means it has to be taxed. So let's say your arrow is 100 horsepower, and then if it hit and it did create rotation, it would rob that 100 horsepower of a certain amount of horsepower to screw through. Number one, there's no benefit to that. It does not help in bone breaching at all. But number two, it just doesn't do it. So there's not really a benefit there. The only thing that you're getting out of a single bevel head, to me, is a weaker unsupported edge. And to me, edge retention and maintaining its sharpness is everything. So that was a major ramble, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, but that's interesting, you know, because, you know, I, I've used them a lot in the past, like you said, and you're right, you know, they, you know, they, they tend to not be as sharp on the way through. But yeah, I, I definitely agree with the rotation aspect because, you know, I've seen there's some broadhead angled blades and I tried those a little bit. And man, the penetration on those was horrible, you know, where they were like <laughs> offset. And That's I, right. I'm, I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and I'm pretty positive they like, I would shoot them and go, no. Like I couldn't even get them to, I think I tested it out on a javelina. And it was like, hit the javelina and stuck in the javelina. And I was like, this is a small animal at 10 feet. That arrow should have smoked through that javelina. You know, and, and it's just like, whatever. It, I think it just, you know, robbed it of its energy. And I, I agree with you that I don't think it was actually rotating, but you know, it was, it was kind of designed to make you think that it did. But as soon as it hit, it just stopped, <laughs> essentially. Like, it went in, it killed sure. it, but it wasn't, it, for close range, a small animal. Didn't react how I, I would have liked it to react. Well, for me, the single bevel heads, the two-blade single bevels do, I think they're just completely parallel and commensurate with just a regular two-blade head as far as penetration goes because they're not creating rotation. They're not taxing the arrow of energy. They do get great penetration because they're a two-blade kind of contact design. They just don't maintain their edge as well. And to me, that's enough for me. I mean, why choose an inferior product when there's a better mousetrap there? But now the, what you're referring to, and I remember the heads I think you're talking about, I want to say years ago that Colpin made the first one to where the blades were on an angle and it looked like a boat propeller. Correct, yeah. And if you look at the ratio of the blades versus the feral body in the surface area, they, those blades were enough at an angle to where they did rotate uh, they looked almost just like a boat propeller. And the there is that those did have to rob the energy from the arrow. And so when it would hit, the arrow, instead of zipping through, would slow down and start to screw, and they would never go through the animal. That's why it did not last very long at all. And you saw very few companies do it. And this was years ago. And it hasn't been replicated because they realize, oh gosh, you're slowing down the nail and turning it into a screw. And I hope that's a super simple analogy for people to understand. And if single bevels did rotate, which I contend they don't, it would not be the greatest thing ever. So anyway, I think we've beat that horse <laughs> slapped to death. So we have a couple of things. With regards to the blade type. There's a lot of blades that are vented and there's a lot of blades that are not vented, they're solid. I've shot both, you've shot both, I know a lot. For me, it came down to two things. Vented heads 
are more accurate. There is no question about it. And they're more accurate and they're more forgiving for guys that are shooting faster, lighter arrows that are less forgiving or their bow is not exactly tuned or they're not executing a good shot consistently. A vented head is going to be more accurate. This is the problem I had with them. I've never shot a vented head that did not sound like a bottle rocket coming down range. And I'm very big on quietest arrow setup, quietest bow setup as possible. I feel like that reaction time is so critical on having your arrow impacting the vitals where you've aimed by having the animal participate in standing still. <laughs> and so when you've got these vented heads that are loud as they're whistling very loud coming at an, at an animal, they're going to instinctually react just like a human would when you hear something buzzing at you. The other part of it is um, the vented head for me, if you have the bone breaching scenario, they're going to clog. You're going to get pieces of bone and chips and cartilage matter lodged in those vented areas of the blade. It's going to slow down the penetration through drag. It's just going to be dragging crap through the animal to where a solid blade head doesn't have the ability to do that if it's designed properly. And then you've also got durability. I mean, if you look at some of these vented heads, there's almost no material behind the bevel. It's just completely cut out. It's just an easy, simple way to obtain a light head, like a hundred grain head without putting effort into it. Um, so for me, that's what rules out vented heads. I'm not saying that guys probably would not benefit from shooting them if they, they do have like what we mentioned before, not a proper tune or shooting super fast light arrows that are not forgiving at all. But for me, what I want is I want to stack all these 1% differences that we've been discussing that are really only one and 2% differences. But if I can take 10 of them and have 10 or 15% more reliability and improved performance for me, I would do it for the one or 2%, much less the sum of all parts that gets you the higher percentage. So that's kind of the dive on the, the vented. You want to jump into mechanicals? Yeah, let's uh, let's jump into mechanicals because I know a lot of people use them. I mean, people know my philosophy and thought on them a little bit from just the past <laughs> experiences. And I've talked about it before. You know, I think there's a lot of people, there's a lot of animals that have been killed with every broadhead, right? Like all the broadheads right. we've talked about, stuff has been killed with it. But then one of the things that was important to me this past season, I, I drew a desert sheep tag. I don't know if I told you this story, but you're going to, I was like, I think when I mentioned in the podcast, I was like Brian's going to be like, what the hell? <laughs> um, yeah. But I, so I knew that I was going to be taking a new bow that I was probably going to get very shortly before the hunt. Yep. And the hunt was very important to me. Of course, some of the benefits of a mechanical broadhead would be that if your bow's a little bit out of tune, you can get those further shots closer to field tips without having to try to troubleshoot it or, or get your bow shooting right. And that's just, you know, one thing. So my thought was, if I'm going to potentially have to use one on a desert sheep hunt, I don't want the first time that I use a broadhead to be on a desert sheep. That would be stupid. Like if I'm going to test a broadhead, it's going to be on feral pigs and goats and maybe axis deer in Hawaii when I'm like, I'm just going to shoot a bunch of stuff and see what works good. And so I got a new mechanical broadhead from somebody that said it was great and I trusted them <laughs> and... I was like on a mule deer hunt and I snuck into five yards on this mule deer and I had my standard day six broadhead on there and I'm like, I'm going to kill this buck. I'm five yards from this deer, snuck in, good buck. And I'm like, well, I should test this other broadhead just in case I have to use it. I wasn't hoping to use it, but just in case I got sure. a bow late and I had like literally showed up before the hunt and I was shoot. I don't know. I, you know, I just didn't know what the scenario was going to be. I'd like to know how it performed. So sure. five yards from the deer, I switched broadheads to the mechanical broad. I, I had the mechanical on. No, I had the mechanical on, I think. I put that on. For, I have to remember what I did. But anyways, I ended up switching broadheads twice. So I went and I'm like, no, this is stupid. I should just kill this buck. 
So I switched <laughs> back to the fixed blade. Then I switched back to the mechanical. And I was sitting there for like an hour waiting At for five, it, yards. five yards. The buck yeah. gets up. I shoot it with the mechanical and it just sticks in and doesn't even penetrate the deer. Like an absolute malfunction of the mechanical brought in and I was just sick to my stomach. I was so pissed off. I mean, it was my one opportunity on that tag. I was shooting straight down on it, like right through the shoulder blade, like right through the yeah. ribs, like not through the shoulder blade, but like right through the back. And it just like hit its back strap and stopped. It, like, it was like I hit it with a... Uh, a <laughs> you remember, yeah, I remember those field, like the small game heads. It would be like a field tip and you'd screw like a washer behind it. It's like I hit it with oh, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the deer ran off with, like, I don't even think it penetrated past the length of the broad. It stuck in an inch and was just like, just immediately stopped. And I was so upset. <laughs> like, just, I was like, screw it. I'll just get close. Like, if I can't, whatever. And I've never, and then in hindsight, I screwed on, uh, I got, I shot my bow. My, I got the new Matthews lift. I shot it. I put on, uh, I was like, oh, I'm shooting out to, 80 yards, 90 yards, like just as I just got it, I put on a broadhead bullseye at, uh, bullseye at 70, bullseye at 80, bullseye at 90. And I was like, with the broadhead, I said, oh, well, that was, I just didn't get a good buck for no reason. Like it was just the dumbest. It was so stupid. And I was so upset about it. But, well, I well, remember you sent me a text that you said, hey, just got the new bow, zero tuning required brought it and you sent me that 70 80 oh yeah and it was just like i can't shoot that good but yeah i mean um, i i was shooting it at 100 yards with broadheads and afraid i was gonna cut fletchings i was like (laughs) okay here we go like i was like i'm not i would go pull the arrow and then go shoot again yeah it was like well it's there's a lot that goes into that executing a great shot number one but you've got a heavier arrow you've got a slower arrow has less wind drag it's way more stable the bow was tuned. That's that's the recipe for, you know, just incredibly accurate fixed broadheads. So with the mechanical discussion, not everybody's going to do that. Not everybody's going to have the ability to get their bow tuned perfectly. They may walk out of the shop with the lightest arrow money could buy and just not know any different. And so... There's the guys like, well, I don't ever want to put myself like in your category, but there's guys that that I shoot a lot, you shoot a lot, that take the deep dive into getting their bow as close to perfect as possible. And then through repetition, they learn to make very good, repeatable, executed shots. They can shoot, I mean... Honestly, I have had bow setups and felt so good about my shooting at times. I'm like, damn, I could strap a, you know, a a tennis racket on the front of this arrow and still group at 50 and 60 yards. I mean, it's just dialed. You put as big a broad as you want to on there. And then there's some that have just been kind of pain in the ding ding and you struggle and fight them to keep them tuned. And you're like, man, I got to shoot them <coughs> on the head. Um, you know, it's, our mutual buddy, Tim, I know Tim wouldn't mind me sharing this. He came over to our place in Oklahoma. This is years ago. And he had just gone through exactly what you did. He had gotten a brand new prototype that hadn't even hit the market yet. And they said, Hey, we're going to send out a few of these. Will you try this out? He did. Well, what he didn't realize and they didn't realize is that there was a, some type of bearing problem or something that of course, before they went into production, they had it figured out. But he brought that bow over and he was trying to get it dialed in in the yard of the cabin there. And he was shooting great. And then he put the fixed blades on and he was missing the target. And so, you know, he dug through his box and got some mechanicals out and they were hitting really close to the to the uh, field points. And so, I mean, that's a scenario to where there's a benefit there for that mechanical strictly through its accuracy. And that's, what, that's why they came about. It's because of accuracy. A few fast forward a few days, um, you know, a buck comes through on him and I, w- I had been with him for the first few days that I'd seen him on his own and I was hunting a different <coughs> deer. This deer comes through and drops at the shot. He hits it high in the shoulder with that mechanical and it was the same 
exact situation that you had. It went in basically the length of the broadhead and the arrow fell out and the deer ran off and it was fine. We saw the deer the next year, you know, and it was great because when Tim brought the footage back, I was like, man, that's like the number one deer I didn't want you to shoot. <laughs> you know, it's like a three-year-old 150-inch deer. Like, don't shoot that thing. And he's like, oh, man, well, it worked out. So that's the downside of the mechanical is that the upside is the accuracy is field point accurate. Most of them are. The downside is penetration. And back to our single bevel discussion, for a mechanical broadhead to open, it has to use energy to open those blades. The only energy available is the velocity of the arrow, the energy from the moving arrow. So it has to tax the energy from the arrow to open those blades. So number one, you're reducing your energy for your momentum calculation to push all the way through by taxing that arrow to open the blades. Number two, if you look at 99% of the mechanicals out there, they pride themselves on one thing, cutting width. It's, man, it's field point accurate, but when it opens up, it's seven inches wide. I mean, it's like this crazy wide cutting width. They're doing that by opening up these very flimsy blades almost at a perpendicular angle to the arrow. So they're sticking straight out. Well, you go back to our early discussion, blade angles everything. You want it to slice, not to chop. It creates very little resistance. You get maximum penetration with very low blade angle. These mechanicals are all designed to stick straight out. They're just a parachute. They're literally an air brake. I mean, they are just, they are not going to go through like a good blade angle uh, mechanical would be. So, the other thing that you've got going with them is that for them to accomplish what they're accomplishing with a, a mechanism that has to, you know, rotate and spin or cam or whatever, the ferrule, the body of the broadhead has to be extremely long to accommodate the mechanism for it to open and close, but also to create these super wide wound channels, they have to be long because the blades are so long. So, what you have is you end up with these broadhead ferrules that are two inches long. Most of them are made from aluminum. And then most of that ferrule is cut away completely through from side to side so you can house or hide the mechanical blades. So you basically have something that is long, unsupported, out of weak materials that is just going to fail on any type of angled impact. Straight on, they're going to be fine. But how often do you shoot an animal completely perpendicular to you, completely 90 degrees straight on? Me not very Rarely. often. Like it's always hard quartering or straight down or straight up. That's like right. it's always like that. That was the problem with that buck I shot. I was shooting at an angle and it was angled. It was quartered away and I was shooting straight down on it and it didn't work. No. And so... But here's what I'll say. I'm 50 years old, and I can proudly say that I've never owned or shot a mechanical broadhead. And the only reason probably is, is that I started shooting traditional archery very early in my life. Very fortunately, it helped me understand a lot of things that probably would have taken a lot longer to understand. But you just, once you see what a two-blade, design will do with very low energy behind it, like a traditional bow, it doesn't take you much to understand what's going on with a mechanical and that it's just takes a lot more to get through. And at the end of the day, two holes are better than one. I'm always shooting for two holes. I want an exit hole. That's normally the drain plug, if you think about it. And if you don't get it, man, you're just lowering your chances of success. So with all that said, <laughs> I am not anti-mechanical. It's not for me. But if you are the guy that has to work 80 hours a week to support your family and you have very little time to come home and spend with your family, your kids, whatever, you have very little time to 
enjoy yourself and hunt and have your own time, you sure don't have the time to go out and deep dive into tuning your bow and getting everything perfect and micro tuning so you can shoot fixed blade heads like Remy at 100 yards. Life gets in the way. And so a mechanical head for me is for that guy because not everybody has the luxury of time and time to me is how you measure wealth. And for, for unfortunately, there's just a lot of people that don't have that. So that is going to be the head that's going to be the best for that guy because you want to be accurate and you want to hit where you're aiming. If your broadheads are not going to hit, your fixed blade heads are not going to hit anywhere near where your field points hit, man, it's, it's, it defeats the purpose. So there is a place for mechanicals. For me, there's two types. There's the cam over type that has to basically open and cam over. And then there's the slip type or the rear deploy that slide back. I don't have a basis of comparison with regards to I've had this success with this or this success with that because I've never shot one. So it's quite hypocritical for me to sit here and talk about the advantages of one over the other. But for me, the way I look at everything is what is the least likely type or mechanism to fail. And for me, it's the cam over style. It's, it's the type that flips over. Now, yes, you probably lose a little more energy, but you're already losing energy with a mechanical. You probably don't have the great entry hole that you might have with some of the rear deploy types. But what you do have is the thing is going to open and it's going to stay open. And the rear deploy types that I've seen, those blades just move around so much in the back. You don't get a consistent cut. And I don't feel like they're as reliable as the cam over style. Now, I'm sure that there is camps on both sides and there's people that probably plant their flag on one or the other. But if I was looking at one and had to shoot one, that would probably be the, the style that I would pick. The other style that I would pick is one that has a actual blade at the front of it, not like a conical point or a chisel point or anything like that. I would want something that has a leading edge sharpened blade that is a cut on contact style. Because for me, I feel like that's going to reduce the friction drag, et cetera, and not impede the penetration as much as the other styles. Um, so a quick anecdote here, back in the late 80s, when I was in high school, I was working at this outdoor store in Alabama. And I started working in the archery department, ended up working there all through college. And such a beneficial experience because back then the bows were pretty tough to tune. They were pretty crappy. <laughs> so you really had to learn how to tune a dad come bow with those things back then. And so now these bows now are just a dream. It takes five minutes and they're just laser beams. But anyway, we were there kind of going through the archery industry in its kind of progression or awakening, if you will, into some of the modern things you see today, mechanical heads, single cam bows, things of that nature. Um, carbon arrows, that was coming around then. So, but one of the things that we did is we spent all of our time in the shop arguing over which was the best broadhead. And here it is, gosh, 35 years later, we're still arguing over the same crap. <laughs> so. <laughs> Back then, we took a mail scale, a digital mail scale that we would do our shipping with. And we built this little platform with a piece of PVC and we sat it on there. And then we would take an arrow and cut it down and we'd stick it in that PVC tube and we would put different broadheads on the top of it. And then just take a green, you know, a fresh green deer hide and put it hair down and just push down on the deer hide and monitor how much pressure it took to poke through that deer high with different types of heads. This is a very eye-opening stat here for people to, to really kind of maybe get our message here. So everybody knows what the muzzy head is. I mean, there's been more animals killed with a muzzy with the trocar bone breaching tip than anything. When we pushed down with the muzzy, the original muzzies, this is 35 years ago, it took 30 
to 38 pounds of pressure to breach that conical tip, that chisel tip, through a green deer hide. This is a fresh deer hide right off a of deer. With any type of cut on contact head, just a, like a two blade style that was sharp, it would take a half of a pound to, to penetrate and breach through that, that green hide. That big of a difference. So you hear me use the term tax a lot. When you have a head that has these, these chisel tips or conical tip styles, they're getting taxed at the point of impact. Your, your momentum is getting taxed because if it takes 38 pounds to pop that through the hide versus half a pound to a pound on a two blade style cut on contact, you're getting taxed quite a bit. So I think that kind of wraps everything into a pretty simple, succinct message for somebody to understand the difference between the two. When you go to a mechanical, when you have something that has to open, it's taxing the arrow to open the blades. When the blades are sticking straight out 90 degrees, you're creating an incredible amount of drag that's taxing that momentum, that energy again. And then when you combine that with a, hit, with a tip on this thing, that's a chisel style or whatever, you're just, you're, you're losing 50 to 60 plus percent of your arrows energy just to make the head go through the hide makes zero sense to me. So I feel like if you're going to use one, try to find one that has a blade attached to the front, no matter how big it is, something that has a cut on contact tip. That was a major ramble, Remy. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, you did make some good points though, because I have tested nearly every mechanical broadhead out there. And I will say that the cam over style for Western big game hunting is a preferred one because I think the slip cam kind, you're right. The angle's a little too steep. You lose the penetration. You shoot at anything that's kind of quartering away. They they don't penetrate. Whereas the cam over style, I think the biggest thing is like, one thing that people don't think about is a mechanical broadhead. I, I like to just to keep it simple, right? There's mechanical yeah. failures and mechanical things. A mechanical broadhead has the word mechanical in it. And there's a lot of mechanical failures. The biggest failure that I found testing most of the broadheads out there. And there's some that are very, very popular for, I think, like whitetail hunting. I'm like, okay, I get it. For whitetail hunting, you're in a tree stand, you're never moving. Western big game hunting, you're crawling around with your arrow on the front. And I had so many like pre-deployments and just air blades falling out and all this other thing. The kind that were cam over, at least they would stay together for the most part. But that to me is actually outside of performance on an animal, the part that was the hardest is crawling and stalking and spot and stalking with something that kept opening up, kept falling apart, kept, I'd be like going to draw back and blades sticking out. You know, it's like, okay, in a tree stand at you're shooting 20 yards, maybe at the most, and you've got, and the thing's never moving other than like from here to there. Okay. Like it works for that. I could see why those people like those. But for what I do and crawling around and stalking animals and being on the mountain and putting your broadhead in and out of a quiver and just like actually hunt, you know, not actually hunting, not trying to take away from, but like yeah. the hunting that I like to do, doing that, oh, I'm going to get some hate mail here. It No, tree stand, I can't, act, I can't tree stand hunt that well because I don't have the, like the patient's mindset. Like I, I'm going to do it a little more just to, build that repertoire, but it's very difficult for me. But when well, you're crawling around doing all those things and in and out, and like there's a lot of things that go wrong with it. And that's part of that like failure problem is like before you even shoot. So that's why, I mean, if you're, if you're going to go that way, you're going to go mechanical. I would say the cam over style because they clamp down and they stay closed when you're stalking is the biggest thing. And then they work a little better, at least in my testing. So you were right on that. Having not used them, you've come to the same conclusion. But, you know, as far as big game hunting, bigger animals, further distances, you know, you might be, you know, weird angles. I'd rather have a cut on contact head that's going to penetrate easily and get into the vitals. And if I mess up a little bit, like it turns, I made about whatever it is, hits the bone. At least I know I'm still going to get that full penetration. It was like, I'm five yards away from a big mule deer buck and I'm stalking. He's walking out and I shoot him right down on top of him. That deer should drop at my feet and be like dead in sight. 
And that's yes. what I want. And that's what I know for a fact I would have had, but I just opted to try something else and I didn't get that. And Well, what, <laughs> you, know. what you mentioned about the pre-deploying brings up another great point. So with regards to Western hunting, spot and stalk, believe it or not, the last 10 years, I have 90% of the big whitetails I've killed, I'm killing them on the ground, spot and stalking them in the grass, mostly CRP type native grasses and things uh, in the Midwest, I could not have killed half of the whitetails alone that I've killed on the ground spot and stalk in the Midwest with a mechanical because you are a realist. You are real world hunting experience as if as am I. Western hunting is 90% on the ground spot and stalk. The type of whitetail stuff I'm doing is spot and stalk on the ground. You are not going to get a wide open, perfectly clear, unobstructed shot every single time on the ground at ground level, eye to eye with animals. You're going to have to shoot through grass. It's just, part, it's, it's a reality. It, it's going to have to happen. With a good heavy arrow set up and a cut on contact head, if you have minimal grass and stuff to shoot through to get into the vitals, it's a non-issue. It is a non-issue. You cannot do the same thing with a mechanical head. It's going to deploy upon, you know, when it has contact with stuff like that. And then it's going to deploy on one side or the other. And then it's going to take the arrow and steer the back end of it left or right. And you're going to get zip for penetration. And yeah, man, I hadn't, I don't have any experience with a mechanical. I've never shot one, but gosh, man, I have guided hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hunters over 30 years, whether it be whitetail, mid, you know, uh, Western game, whatever. I've seen so many animals taken or wounded with mechanical heads, fixed alike, but I've seen what they do. I mean, it's not like I have not seen the results. I haven't seen the different types of scenarios. I mean, I've, you know, I, I had a Bavarian mountain hound for 13 years. It just, we just had to, you know, we lost him a few weeks ago. And one of the best tracking dogs I've ever been around. I don't know how many blood trails that dog and I have gone on behind mechanical heads. I mean, it's gotta be four or 500 maybe over that time period. So you get to see what they do. It's a common theme. It either blows into them and knocks a giant hole in the side of them and gets to vitals, or it doesn't go in at all. There's not like an in-between. It's a work or don't work type of scenario. And so for me, it's just not my pig, not my farm. But for guys that can't invest the time, it may be the only option. And if it is, I would use a cam over. I would use one that's as compact as possible, thickest blades that you can find, and a kind on contact leading edge blade. To me, that would be that would stack the odds the best you can in your favor. So, I can't believe we've talked this long about mechanicals. <laughs> I feel like <clears throat> uh, no. That, I mean, yeah. I think we we've, we've really covered a lot of the aspects of broadheads what goes into a broadhead, different types and the things you gain and the things you lose by different types. And and I think that that's like a, a really good all-encompassing, hey, I'm looking at a broadhead, here's what it is and here's what I sacrifice with this, here's what I gain with this. You know, there's give and take in every scenario, every type of setup. And I think that that's like a really good overview of, you pretty much covered everything for all the broadheads out there. So I think this is a very valuable podcast when it comes to broadhead selection types of broadheads and and what goes into a broadhead thank you yeah. guys thank well, you so much for uh, jumping on with me and, and going over this you know where can guys reach out to you i know we've talked about it on the arrow podcast like people have questions a lot of these as we were talking are from emails of people asking these questions to you being like hey what's the deal with this what's the deal with that and i know that you get hundreds of emails about these things so it's like let's just cover it in a podcast and be like here here's essentially yeah. the entire breakdown of what goes into the way a broadhead works. Sure. Well, you know, when we did the Arrow podcast, I thought, man, we covered it all. There shouldn't be a lot of questions. And gosh, I, Remy, I can't tell you 
how many calls and emails we got after that with guys with more questions. And that's why day six gear exists is to help widen the circle of people that I can help. Um, that's why we do it. I, I love helping people become more successful, ethical bow hunters. It just, it fills my heart. That's just the truth of it. And so when people have questions about broadheads, arrows, or whatever, you can always email us off our website at day six gear, or you can call us on the number there and either myself or Dakota will answer and he's better than I am. So either one of us you get, we should be able to help you. And, and I don't want guys to feel like they're ever bothering us or feel uncomfortable calling thinking that it's a stupid question. There's no such thing as a stupid question. There's no such thing as, as bothering us. This is why we do it. So please reach out to us. We're, we're here to help regardless of whether you shoot our arrows or our broadheads. That doesn't matter. If you need help, call us. That's what we're here for. So we should probably be a nonprofit. Uh, we're just technically not one. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time, yeah. Brian. I appreciate yeah, it. And I know fun. the listeners and, and those that have taken, uh, used you as a resource. I, I, I know that when I've got questions on this kind of stuff, you're the first person I call. So thank you so much for, for all your help and really appreciate it. You bet, buddy. I enjoyed it. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that podcast as much as I did. I know Brian's such a wealth of information when it comes to broadhead, broadhead selection, arrows, arrow selection. That arrow podcast, we got such great response from it. I was at the Wild Sheep Show this past week and guys are coming up being like, dude, I listened to that podcast. I actually changed my setup and I've been shooting better. My bow's more quiet. Like it's just a lot better setup for hunting. I really liked to hear that because it was something that somebody did from this podcast, took it into action and, and it worked out right. So I think this this one's going to be the same where there's so much information out there and and here's kind of behind the scenes of everything that goes on in a broadhead, what makes them work, uh, what makes them fly, some different things to think about when you're choosing a broadhead and then find what's right for you. That was just a, a wealth of information from Brian. So I really appreciate him taking the time to do that podcast. Before we get out of here, one of the things I want to talk about as well, a great partner of ours, Stone Glacier. Uh, they've got some incredible gear. One of the packs that I'm looking forward to, to trying out this year is the Cole 4800. The awesome thing about this pack, it's, it's very similar, kind of like their solo bag. It's feature-rich, though. It's got really good versatile storage across a bunch of different hunts. So the thing that I like about it is it's great for, you know, maybe you've got an archery hunt or a day hunt, but it can also be used for those four or five day backcountry trips. I like the fact that it's well balanced for strapping a bow or rifle to it. Uh, there's a lot of awesome features, uh, some great pockets on it, quick access to your spotting scope, internal pocket as well. Definitely one that I think I'm going to be running this season. And so I figured before they're, they're gone or sold out right before the season, might as well mention it to you guys that that's now available. It's a new pack that they just came out with very recently. Yeah, looking forward to running that pack this season. I know they've got some available on their website right now. You can always check them out, stoneglacier.com. And as always, you can use code LIVEWILD for free shipping on anything from Stone Glacier. So thank you guys so much for that. Until next week, I'm just going to say stay sharp. It's a broadhead podcast. Catch you guys later.